The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix, and we'd recommend you check out the new documentary Descendant, now streaming on Netflix. This film by Margaret Brown is quite honestly one of our favorites of the year, and it's not just us. It's appearing on lots of Oscar preview lists. It's a richly layered story about the search for and the discovery of the Clotilda, the last known ship to arrive with enslaved Africans in the United States. But what it really is, is the story of the descendants of this ship, whose ancestors survived this horrible journey on the Clotilda, founded the community of Africa Town, which is now part of Mobile, and passed down their stories through the generations. This film, like these stories, is a true treasure. So check it out now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Laura Poitras, the director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. The film had its world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion Award for Best Film. That's the best film at the festival, not just documentary. It is currently nominated for a Gotham Award for Best Documentary and four Cinema Eye Honors Awards, including Outstanding Documentary Feature and Outstanding Direction. Laura Poitras is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker whose film Citizen Four won the Oscar in 2015 for Best Documentary Feature. Previously, she was nominated for an Oscar in 2007 for her film My Country, My Country. She's the recipient of many awards, including a Primetime Emmy, BAFTA, DGA, Independent Spirit, IDA Award, multiple Cinema Eye Honors Awards, and many, many others. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is a true collaboration between Laura and the artist Nan Golden, and learning how that creative partnership was formed and the ways they collaborated to make this film really form the heart of this interview. Nan had actually started filming with her group Pain Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, which is a group she founded with colleagues in response to the opioid crisis, and then later approached Laura, who decided to take it on. A huge part of the film and a key part of their collaboration was how to feature Nan's artwork. She's best known for these photographic slideshows that she has been doing for decades. And so Laura and Nan together had to come up with a process for showing the artwork in the best light possible. Clearly, these two artists had a great connection. Laura describes Nan as a legend, a hero, an inspiration. And it's interesting because at the time I heard about this film, I was like, oh, this seems like a bit of a departure for Laura to focus on an artist like Nan Golden. But after watching the film and talking to Laura, it's clear that it makes total sense. As Laura says, she's drawn to portraits of individuals confronting power. And Nan Golden, both through her work and her actions with the group Pain, is doing a lot to confront power. Of course, we covered a number of other topics, and I'll just let you discover those in the interview itself. All the Beauty in the Bloodshed will be released by Neon in theaters starting on November 23rd in New York City, December 2nd in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and then continuing on with a national release after that. The film will premiere on HBO and HBO Max at a date to be announced. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Laura Poitras, the director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Laura Poitras, welcome to Top Docs. It's great to be here. 
Thank you for being here and congratulations on all the beauty and the bloodshed. Thank you. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? So All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is a portrait of renowned artist and photographer Nan Golden, and it follows her efforts to hold the Sackler family accountable for their role in the overdose crisis in this country, and also is a portrait of her artwork. Let's talk about the opening scene. The film opens outside the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City on March 10th, 2018. We go inside and the artist Nan Golden and fellow activists are preparing to engage in a protest in the Sackler Wing, which houses the Egyptian Temple of Dender. And they're protesting the Sacklers for their direct responsibility in the deaths of thousands of people related to the Purdue Pharma drug OxyContin and also for the family lying about what they knew about the consequences of their drug. Your camera puts us right in the middle of things with the protesters and the guards and the museum goers. Why did you want to start the film here? Yeah, thank you for that question. From the moment I started working on this film, that was the first scene. It's a cold open. I like dropping the audience in deep water and you don't know what's going on. And then backing up from there. After you see this disruptive action at the Met, then you learn, okay, who are the people there? Who's Nan? What is this organization, Pain? And yeah, that was always the beginning of the film. Like with every film, the, the sort of editing process unfolds over time, but that just never changed. And I was interested in starting there just because I wanted to wake the audience up and then put into motion what are the themes of the film. And as you learn over the course of time, you know, Nan herself experienced addiction to OxyContin when she recovered, she reads this article by Patrick Radden Keefe, who makes the connection between the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. Up until then, the Sacklers had been very good at keeping their name out of the press and keeping the sort of associations Purdue Pharma somewhat obscured from the public. Nan and this very small group of friends started meeting in her living room to plan to push the museums to disassociate themselves from the Sackler family. You know, you have to understand how this works. Vast wealth has been made from this drug. And then the art museums become a way of art washing or whitewashing this money. They just wanted to draw attention like this is blood money. This is directly blood money. People are dying of this drug that Purdue Pharma, because of their aggressive marketing of OxyContin, has led to tens of uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the U.S. alone. It's between 400 and 500,000 people who've died from the overdose crisis. It's widely agreed that what fueled it was this very aggressive marketing of OxyContin in the early 2000s. I wanted to ask more about what it was like for you shooting in the Met in that moment. Obviously, you're there amongst the protesters. You're documenting what they're doing. You don't want to get in their way. What was that like for you? Actually, I joined the project after that protest. When Nan created the organization Pain, they themselves set out to make a documentary as well. So they had cameras there and they coordinated it. And then it was later, over a year later, that they invited me to come on board the project. So I was not there, so I can't speak about it. But I think that Nan and Payne knew that it was important to document. They understood that. And when I talked to them, I just remember I was thrilled that they had the foresight to make sure that there was a camera there. And I think Payne was very inspired by the work of ACT UP that drew attention to the AIDS crisis and the direct actions that they engaged in and knew the importance of, you know, not just to disrupt public spaces. Like they definitely want the 
people in museums to also be learning about what the Sacklers are doing, but the importance of documenting in media as well to bring attention. So they had a lot of foresight in making sure that they documented their meetings and actions. Just in terms of going back to your first question, this is why, I mean, Nan is fully, you know, a total collaborator in this film. She's a producer on the film. She started the film. Obviously, it's based on a lot of her artworks. It's very much a collaboration. Prior to this film, what was your familiarity with Nan Golden's work? I mean, she's a legend, a hero, uh, inspiration, all those things. I was introduced to her work first in the late 80s, early 90s. I'd seen the Ballad of Sexual Dependency projected in many occasions. She's just been so groundbreaking. Her work in terms of transforming the art world, creating sort of a new language for cinematic storytelling, narrative, and just the profound and radical intimacy and bravery of her work. This is an artist who goes to really deep personal places in her work. So I'd known about her work for a long time, and she's always been an inspiration, a hero. And then we met in 2014 when I was releasing Citizen Four. She was on a jury at a festival. We connected, and then we reconnected again in 2019. That's when I got involved in this film. We were having breakfast, and she told me about the film. She was looking for a producer, and Howard Gertler, who's one of the producers on the film, he and I had worked together for many years, so that's how it kind of came together. Was it... An immediate reaction where you're like, yes, this is something I know I want to do. And then let's just jump in and get started. Or did you have to think about it? What was your process like? First, I was terrified. It's like, man, is a little intimidating, but it was pretty immediate. Like I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'd seen when she did the action in the Met, I had followed it from the news. Then when it came out, I was really excited that here's an artist who's using her power in the art world in a way that's very rare. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen as much as it should, that people leverage their power in such ways. And so that was kind of an immediate fit for me. You know, like my films, I'm interested in individuals, like portraits of individuals who are confronting power. And so that was pretty obvious fit. But yeah, I was pretty nervous. Nan is very formidable and that I could do it justice, that I could do the film and the story justice. One of the true joys of the film are the interviews, which I think a better word is probably conversations between you and Nan. These take place pretty much, I think, exclusively off camera. We don't see either of you talking during these conversations. Every so often we hear you ask Nan a question or prompt her with a follow-up, or sometimes it's just your reaction to something she said. Regardless, it really seems a lot less like a, quote, standard sit-down interview that you might see in a documentary. It's really more of a conversation between two people, one of whom is just intensely curious to find out more about the other's life and work. It feels really organic. And it reminded me of the Maisels' relationships with the people that they were filming with. I mean, it's its own thing, but I'll just tell you that was an association that I made in my head. Can you talk more about your approach to these conversations? conversations and how you wove them into the film. Conversations is the right word. You're right that they're audio only and they were conducted over an extended period of time, I think over a year and a half, I think about 20, because we went in and do a first round. And then after Nan saw the cut, we went back and did additional interviews. For me, they became the real through line of the film. When I first sat down to talk to Nan, I didn't know what to expect. And it went so emotionally deep so quickly. And that is, you know, Nan's kind of, I don't know, bravery, emotional bravery. I found myself so deeply moved sitting with her in these conversations. Her voice, the quality of her voice and her amazing storytelling. At the beginning of the film, she has this conversation where she talks about the difference between story and memory. I love that part of the film. 
And it was also something that we talked about in the conversations. There's a way in which people can tell a story that you know that's been repeated many times. And in the repeating of many times, there's sometimes can be like an emotional disassociation. It's like, okay, these are the words I've said it. This is the story that I tell myself or that I tell others about the work. This particularly happens with someone like an artist who's often having to explain their work. And so I talked to her a lot about let's not follow the path that we know, right? The story that we know or that we've told or that she's told, but how can it be closer to what she talks about as memory, something that's a little bit messier. We spent a lot of time. I was very patient and I hope you feel that quality, that it's kind of also a discovery process, not just a retelling of a story. Absolutely. That comes through. And I did take note of that line of Nan's. It's easy to make your life into stories, but it's harder to sustain real memories. Mm -hmm. And then she says, even if you don't actually unleash the memories, the effect is there. It's in your body. And it's obviously in her work and it's in your film through these conversations. In these dialogues, and that's what I was trying to make it so that things could emerge, right? That it's not just a, a recounting of the story that we tell ourselves. And as a filmmaker as well, like there's a bit of a danger with a story. A story kind of can tidy up any loose ends, makes things neat and has the danger of the audience feeling there's a sense of resolution or that they've gone on some cathartic experience, but that they leave the screening or if it's in a theater or at home and go about their daily life. And I, I hope that this film and my films kind of try to push back on that, right? Yes, there's stories. I, I'm a storyteller. I make films. But I hope that there's not a sense of absolute resolution, right? That this is a film that challenges people to question the status quo, like both the political status quo or maybe their sort of personal relationship status quo. So there's always this tension between making connections, but also extending beyond the frame or the realm of the film experience. And there are a couple of times where Nan says things like, I didn't know that until I just told you that, or I never told that to anybody before. So yeah. there really is a sense that you two are going into these sort of dark spaces of memory and bringing out things that she didn't even know herself that she was going to talk about. I think you're talking about, she makes a decision to talk about sex work and the film. And that was something that she said, it's, it's important. And for her, and this is what she said, is that the stigma is so awful around sex work that it was important to talk about it. And I think that's something that Nan does throughout the film and her artwork is to destigmatize. And that's really incredibly brave because the society creates lots of issues of shame and secrecy around certain issues. And Nan has been really at the foreground of like, no, let's destigmatize these issues and then also place shame where it belongs, right? Shame belongs on the Sackler family. <laughs> shame belongs on the people who are profiting off of people's pain and death and not on individuals. And so I think this is really central to her artwork, not just represented in the film. Nan does talk about her sister's suicide and her parents' reaction. She recounts the story of hearing her mother say, tell the children it was an accident. And Nan says, she didn't want us to know the truth. Maybe this is just me, but in this moment, I thought about Edward Snowden, the NSA whistleblower, who was the subject of your film, Citizen Four. And what I thought about was how both Snowden and Nan are exposed here to some privileged information that they were not ever supposed to hear or talk about. 
And eventually both chose to speak up about it. So the idea of being in denial about what they saw or keeping it a secret was kind of anathema to both of them. I'm just curious if you see any similarities. First of all, I generally tell the story of Nan's sister. I want the film to speak for itself. Just it's so just important. And I think that the film lays out that. But with that said, yeah, absolutely. I agree. This is a film that Nan completely rejects denialism. It is anathema to her. I relate to that. And I do think that it was also something that drove Snowden to do what he did. So I do understand that connection, the sort of like rejection of the status quo, rejection of denialism and speaking out at personal risk. You know, you think of people who are on the right side of history throughout their lives. And I think Nan is one of those. And it involves making hard choices that comes with risks. And I feel the same about Ed and the choices he made. He was on the right side of history. And it's come with enormous consequences. I want to talk about Nan's slideshows that are incorporated into the film. First of all, can you talk a bit about how Nan used slideshows to exhibit her work and why this was so innovative, which I think clearly it was? Yeah, it's completely groundbreaking, right? And the way that she's using the slideshow format to tell stories over time with the use of music on the film. She's the music consultant. And then she's telling the stories with the characters, the people she was filming. And you sort of go on these journeys. She started the slideshow format when she was finishing school and she actually didn't have the money or didn't have access to a dark room. So she had to show her work and then she did it as slideshows. And then she added the music in the 80s when she was showing the Ballad of Sexual Dependency in New York. It was a live performance. Since your audience might not have seen the film, the people in her photographs are her friends, family, lovers, intimate friends, roommates. She doesn't do street photography. So she's part of the situation that she's filming. That's where the intimacy comes from. And so when she started showing the slideshows, it was mostly for the people who were in the photographs. So they would be the audience. And then because there were slides, that's a carousel, she could constantly reorganize them, which is what she was doing. So every time she did a screening of the ballad, it was different. It was interactive. People would respond and that she would edit based on those responses. And she would operate the slideshows and there'd be somebody playing music at the same time. So it was very organic, very performative. She jokes about often showing up an hour late. They were like happenings. And then over time, they become a little bit more fixed, even though she continues to re-edit her slideshows, in including up until today. She still has made changes to the Ballad of Sexual Dependency for her current exhibition, her retrospective that opened a couple weeks ago, she changed the ballot again. But now she's not in the back of the room operating to slide. There's more elaborate technical setup. It was radical on so many levels, both the images themselves, the intimacy, what they revealed about couples and the difficulty of being in relationships. You know, she famously photographed herself after being beaten up by her boyfriend and included those images in her slideshow. She talks about at some point she had filmed her friend having sex and her friend asked those photographs to be removed. And then Nan said, oh, well, I should include myself having sex. If I'm going to film somebody else having sex, I'll include myself. Then she includes those photographs. So really radical. And at a time where there was a lot of discrimination against women artists, a lot of people dismissed the sort of intimacy of the photographs. What she did was really an uphill battle when she started showing the work. And now it's considered one of the great works of contemporary art, but it wasn't recognized that when, when she was originally doing these performances. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions, which is what got the art world to finally wake up and begin to show this work and give it the recognition that it deserved? 
I think it was kind of undeniable, the power of this and it, how it connected to audiences, you know, it was somewhat undeniable. And she did have champions. There were people who were exhibiting her work and understood how important it was. But oftentimes people are ahead of their time, right? Great artists are oftentimes ahead of their time. In terms of how the slideshows are used in the film, because she has constantly updated the work and you have the timeframes of the work, which yep. continues in many cases to the present, how did you, as the filmmaker, figure out, okay, Nan, which slides are we going to use? How are we going to fit this into the movie? So the slideshows are excerpted throughout the film in context of how the story is unfolding. So the film follows certain chapters of Nan's life, but those are also aligned with the art that she had made about that. So we talk about her years in Boston filming the Queens and how she went to the other side the first time. And then we excerpt to her slideshow, The Other Side. So hopefully the slideshows are sort of part of the story and that our conversations also shed light on the artworks themselves. And it was very important that the audience understand the difference between what is an excerpt of her work versus what is the film. Also, we were excerpting other incredible filmmakers that also let us license their work. So you have Vivian Dick's Super 8 films that we are accepting. And it was just really important to Nan that we identify this. This is Vivian's work. So throughout the film, we're excerpting other artworks, including Nan's slideshows. And in these excerpts, are you just asking her, okay, we're going to insert an excerpt here. It's this amount of time. Provide me with the list of images. Or how actually did that happen? She does have digital versions of the works, even though if you see the ballad, if you were to go to her retrospective, it would be an analog. I think there are nine slide projectors that are cross-dissolving, but she does have digital versions of them. So the first excerpt you see, the music is Costa Diva, this beautiful operatic song. And those are the images she had already edited. That is her edit of the music and the images. And we just set the ins and out points. And so our thinking about it was like, what did the film need at that point? And with music, we needed to be able to clear the rights for the music. And so some decisions on that, but we were pretty much able to do that in most cases. And so we excerpt the ballad, we excerpt from the other side. She has a new slideshow called Memory Lost, where she talks about the experience of withdrawal from drugs. And that's with a soundtrack by Mika Levy, renowned composer. And then at the end of the film, there's an excerpt of Nan's Sister Saints and Sibyls, which is a three-channel installation that's about Nan's sister, Barbara. Yeah, I was spending so much time talking about it because to me, it's fresh and new the way you utilize her work. Again, it's a collaboration with Nan. Typically, you might have a filmmaker who has access to an artist's archive, and then they kind of decide how they're going to use it. But here, it feels like <laughs> every step of the way, it's collaborative. And much of what we're seeing in these excerpts kind of mimics what we would see if we were at a Nan Golden show. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. The ballad is really an amazing experience to see, and I encourage everyone to try to do that. But yeah, we did try to have the audience understand what the experience is to let them uh, understand her work and the kind of storytelling and visual language that she uses. That was very important. And as I said at the beginning, this is a film that Nan began. And so it had to be a collaboration. And Nan also talks in the film about how she collaborates with the people she photographs. And so that was like another reason it was important that she be involved throughout the process. You did mention some of the photographs in The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, the ones where she was battered by her ex-lover. He punched her repeatedly, and it's just horrific, the abuse that she suffered. She has this line, which is, my pictures of myself battered are what kept me from going back, mm -hmm. by which I presume she means going back to the relationship. What I found interesting there, too, is a duality of meaning, 
in that looking at the pictures was a reminder not to go back to this relationship, but also the act of shooting the pictures. Time and again, Nan talks about how photography gave her a voice. And so I thought there must have been real power in the fact that she's looking at herself, taking these pictures and taking control. Yeah, I very much agree. Her artwork is how she communicates. It is her voice. And she also says in the film, not only was it the reason she didn't go back, but also that by showing the photographs, it helped other women, or not just women, but people who are in an um, abusive situation, speak about it or be able to end relationships that should end. And so sharing them was also an act of destigmatizing. And they're just very haunting images and very hard to share too, right? I think that's important to understand about both what she shares in the film, but then also in her artwork, that it's not easy. In terms of the group Payne's protests, we learned that a year after the protests began, the National Portrait Gallery in London, which is about to exhibit a retrospective of Nan's work, decides after Nan says, look, I'm not going to participate in this show if you accept a $1.3 million gift from the Sacklers. After all that, the National Portrait Gallery drops the Sackler grant, and this becomes a major victory for the group, and it's the first domino to fall. On the outside, it seems, okay, Nan has some real leverage here because it's a retrospective of her work, and if the artist doesn't want to participate, that's it, right? No show. But that doesn't mean it was a slam dunk or easy. Why do you think Nan and Payne were able to be successful with the National Portrait Gallery, and how come the dominoes kind of fell yeah. In pretty much rapid succession after that. That's always the kind of alchemy that you always want to understand. What is the thing that ultimately causes like a tipping point, right? And at that point, their first action had been over a year before that. They did the action of the Met, then they're doing actions. The response from the museums was like nothing. There was no public statements like, we're thinking about this. We're considering like whether or not we should take Sackler money. They were like, hope this goes away. I think inside the museums, there was a lot of sympathy. I think the staff at the museums were glad that Payne was doing what they were doing, but the cultural institutions in the U.S. and in Europe were like, hopefully it goes away. And it didn't. And they were very persistent. And it was, as you said, like a domino. Every time that they would do a protest, it would be in the news. It created a lot of pressure on the institutions. These are institutions for the public and to have the Sackler name. As she says, it's a bad look, but they were nervous. You see a, a bit in the film, there's some WhatsApp blogs get leaked and everybody's treating it like a PR problem, right? Nobody's going, whoa, we need to correct this situation. And the National Portrait Gallery in London deserves a lot of credit for being the first to do it. It's a lot of money to say no to, $1.3 million. But I think like became untenable for the other institutions to do it. And then you just see this like, okay, we're not going to take the money. We're not going to take the money. The Met comes out, Guggenheim, the Tate. It was a domino effect. But one of the things I hope the film provides some insight is a bit of a blueprint into, okay, not just how does an activist organization work, but what produces success. That was pretty amazing victory. But as you see in the film, it's right after that they start getting followed by private investigators. There's people lurking outside of their house. So the story wasn't over there and it came with some real consequences. Another piece of Payne's work that I think is really incredible is not only did they do protests within museums, but when Purdue files for bankruptcy, they follow them into the courtroom, right? They create this ad hoc committee on accountability, and then they have to deal with these motions and spend probably millions of dollars dealing with the fact 
that Mike Quinn, who you see in the end of the film, is filing these motions to also push for accountability. So it was direct action in museum spaces and also in the courtroom in bankruptcy court. In terms of a blueprint, it really struck me that ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, really does provide not just pain, but civil rights activists since that time with a blueprint. So for me, it was really interesting to see how historically important ACT UP was as an organization, as a movement, as a set of strategies. And in the film, it comes up directly because AIDS and AIDS activism was part and parcel of Nan's life and her work. I just would love to hear a bit more about how ACT UP in some ways did provide this blueprint and creates a legacy that goes on and on. I mean, Nan and Payne, they say it in the film that Payne was inspired by the work that ACT UP had done in trying to carry that forward, direct actions, be disruptive and make people pay attention to an injustice in society. As the film shows, there's this convergence of Nan's sort of political engagement between what she did in the 80s in response to the AIDS crisis and her work with pain. Nan experienced the devastation and the loss of her community to the AIDS crisis. And she curated this show in New York called Witnesses Against Our Vanishing. And in that show, she brought her friends together and showed their work, which was both sort of rejecting ideas of victimhood and celebrating sexuality and very much a community response to the AIDS crisis. When she did the show, it was at Artist Space. The NEA creates this whole national controversy where the NEA withdraws funding in response to David Wanarowicz writing about the AIDS crisis. So Nan finds herself again in her artwork converging with activism. In terms of the filmmaking, I knew early on that these two historical moments would converge in the film that Nan's work around witnesses against our vanishing and in creating pain, that that kind of historical juxtaposition is something that I wanted the audience to come away with the sort of tragic repetitions of a loss of a generation in these two different times. And the witnesses show is also where this theme of resistance, I think, really becomes such a strong one and reverberates throughout the film. Yeah. I did want to talk about Nan's work, Memory Lost, which does seem very different from the work we've seen before. I believe it's a mix of color and black and white. To me, it seemed, and I haven't seen the show, but it seems more dreamy, almost as if born of the subconscious, partly. It's also digital, which is interesting. How do you see Memory Lost in the context of Nan's body of work? It's a major work, and it's one of her most recent pieces that she's done. She worked with composer Mika Levy, incredible composer, and she describes the images she's using. They're much less about people, more landscape, skies. And she also includes, she had saved her answering machine audio recordings from I guess throughout the 80s, 90s. And so you hear her voice, you hear friends, you hear friends calling. It's part of a diptych. There are two films. There's one called Sirens and there's one called Memory Loss. Sirens is about the kind of euphoria of drugs and being high. And it's mostly composed of found footage. And Memory Lost is about the agony of withdrawal. And that's kind of where it goes. But yeah, it has a bit more of a associative quality to it. Toward the end of the film, we see footage from an unfinished documentary that Nan was making of her parents, and we see footage shot in their home. Nan interviews them about Nan's sister Barbara's suicide. It's pretty remarkable footage. I just wanted to know a bit more about the footage and the documentary that Nan started but didn't finish. 
Nan made this incredible installation piece called Sister Saints and Sybils that you see towards the end of the film about her sister Barbara. And that was a work that she completed, premiered in France. And then I think right after that, she decided to also work on a film about her sister and just for different reasons, didn't finish it. And so when we started the process of making this film, she shared with us her archive and and this was among the footage. And I agree, it's it's really extraordinary and haunting. And I'll let the film speak for itself beyond that. Near the end of the film, Nan talks about her sister and she says, I think this is an important story, not just for me, but for society about conformity and denial and stigma. My sister was a victim of all that, but she knew how to fight back. Her rebellion was the starting point for my own. She showed me the way. So it's such a powerful moment, and it really does speak to this theme of legacy, I think. There are multiple legacies in the film. Some are positive. Some are negative. I mean, the Sacklers' legacy, the legacy that the first generation passed down to the next generations is a terrible legacy. Yeah, I mean, I agree totally with what you just said, including how powerful that the statement is that Nan shares about her sister. The legacy of the Sacklers, it is a devastating legacy. Arthur Sackler was the kind of architect of this promoting of drugs to doctors with the sale of Valium, which was also incredibly addictive, as Patrick Redden Keefe says in the film and has talked about in his book, Empire of Pain. And then the playbook of how Valium was marketed and the kickbacks and the profiting and how that money was funneled into the art world. And you see then kind of returning with OxyContin after Arthur's death and his brothers decide that they're going to take this highly addictive drug and directly target doctors to overprescribe it and to downplay the addictive properties and the devastating consequences of that. And, you know, what does it say about American society and capitalism and greed and impunity? Patrick Redden Keefe said it's a very American story about power and impunity. That's the Sackler side. And then Nan, I think, represents something very different kind of legacy about fighting back, about resistance, about rejecting denialism, about the revolutionary power of art and the importance of art in society and the importance of resistance and the continuum of art and activism and politics. You know, there's a lot of devastation and death in this film, and I hope there's also a lot of hope and inspiration. Well, Laura, there is plenty of both in your film. It's an immense work, I think. And there's a moment where Nan's mother brings out this card that has a quote from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness that Barb kept with her. And the first part of it is, droll thing that life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. But I think Nan's life and her work and your film are a refutation of the idea of futility. So thank you so much for being with us today, Laura, and congratulations on this incredible film. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem that you'd like to spotlight here today? So I wanted to choose something that I thought would be not that well known. So I thought of two, Crossroads by Bruce Connor. It's an experimental film that's repurposing footage taken by the U.S. military where they're testing atomic weapons in the Pacific and he builds a score around it and they set up all these slow motion cameras. It's a very haunting film about the destructive powers of (laughs) nuclear bombs. And then I really love Ken Jacobs, 
perfect film. This one has a great story. So there was a dumpster in New York and a news station was throwing away all their raw footage from news gathering. And back in the 60s, 16 millimeter footage, it would shot sync sound. So you had magnetic stripe along with picture. It was basically raw footage that was taken in the aftermath of the assassination of Malcolm X in New York. You hear the reporters asking the same questions of people who are witnesses. And it, it is a perfect film. So those are my two recommendations. Thank you.